The season of Lent is traditionally a time of reflection and prayer and confession of sin and self-denial. It begins on Ash Wednesday, which was just a few days ago in this sanctuary. Some of you, I think, may have been at the service on Ash Wednesday. I was out of town. I wasn't able to be here. But I watched it last Friday night in its entirety, and I, each time, like so many of you, I'm struck by just the elegance uh, and yet the simplicity of, of um, one of our Ash Wednesday services. But what really impressed me the most was to watch the aisleways fill up with people who were coming forward to receive the ashes or to receive communion or to pass the peace. And it's just a beautiful thing to see. Sometimes as a pastor, I get, uh, I get lost in the details um, uh, of what's happening in the church. But every now and then, uh, more frequently lately, I get to step back and ask myself the larger question of what kind of people we're making. What are we making here? Churches are like factories in that sense. They produce something. Sometimes they can get lost in details, and we need those. But at the end of the day, uh, they are part of the transformation process that God is doing in people's lives. And my heart was just filled on a Friday night as I watched uh, our church, some of you, just uh, line up at, at this church in order to meet each other and to meet God. About uh, one-third th- uh, of Matthew, about half of Mark, and two-thirds of Luke are devoted to the last few weeks of Jesus' life. In John's gospel, all of that is compressed into the last six days. That story starts in John chapter 12, where we'll be looking today. I spent the week out on the East Coast. I was with our friends from the Salvation Army, uh, really spending all day with them, uh, all week, telling them things that pretty much y'all have taught me. So I would be up early in the morning and try to get ready for that day. But earlier than the morning, I would start to focus on John chapter 12, Thought I understood it until I jumped in the back seat of a taxi cab on my way to the airport, and he said it better than anyone. He was a young man in his early 30s, I think, and uh, when I jumped in, he pulled out and he noticed the flag was at half-mast, and he alluded to the shooting in Florida. I threw him a softball, hoping he'd hit it, and he never did. I said, it seems like what our country needs right now is not so much a president, but a priest, someone who can help us bury our dead and help heal our broken soul. But he went right from that into a long discourse on gun control. (laughs) He said he was for the right to bear arms, but he was against the NRA. And from there, he went to politics in Washington. And then from there, he went to the subject of how we elect our leaders. (laughs) And from there, to the subject of American families. And by now, he was slapping the seat next to him, saying, in God's name, would somebody do something? And I noticed he was looking in the rearview mirror more than he was looking out the windshield. And that's when I got nervous. (laughs) So I thought I would change the subject. I said to him, so tell me about yourself. Are you married? He laughed and said, no, no, not yet, but I am finally going to give that woman the ring she deserves. I said, oh, that's good for you. Does she know? Have you told her? He said, oh, yes, yes, we've, 
We've talked about marriage a long time. She knows that I'm going to marry her, but I can't afford the ring. Uh, I said, uh, have you been saving a while? He said, I can't lie to you. I've been saving about nine months. I said, are you close? He said, no, not really. I still got a little ways to go. <laughs> I said, wow, that must be some ring. He said, well, you know, sometimes love can be expensive, man. <laughs> and when he said it, he touched the nerve of John chapter 12. There's a lot of talk in America today about how much God loves us. And that's fairly well established in the scriptures. But what is still up for grabs is how much we love him. That has always been the question. This week I read a survey of religion in America. 92% of us believe in God. 82% of us say religion is very important to us. The question that the survey was trying to answer was, what does America want from its religion? But while I was reading it, a larger question kept looming in the background. What does America's religion want from us? And by the end of the survey, the answer was pretty clear. America's religion wants us to be polite, open-minded, sensitive, culturally aware. It wants us to be nice, well-adjusted, balanced, humble, reasonable, and safe. What's happening in John chapter 12 is not any of that. I pushed away from the survey and I thought, my mother wants me to be nice, humble, genuine open-minded. But that is not the picture that emerges from John chapter 12. The background of this chapter will interest you. A few verses before in chapter 11, it says all of the Jews are moving steadily into the temple in Jerusalem. They're in the process of a 2,000-year-old ritual called ceremonial cleansing that makes them ready to worship on what is Israel's high holy day. And while the people are standing in the courts inside the temple of Jerusalem, while they are surrounded by the structure and the vestiges of their worship, they are asking one another, do you think he'll show up? Do you think Jesus will make it to the festival this year? It's a good question because by this time in John's gospel, Jesus is wildly famous, but he's just as controversial. In fact, the priests have already decided that if he does show up, he will be promptly arrested. And the high priest has already said, if we arrest him, we'll kill him. So we can save our nation from the Romans. So it's a good question. Is Jesus going to come to worship this year? There is in the Jewish tradition the idea that when the Messiah comes into Jerusalem, finally arrives, the priest himself would go out and meet him and he would pour oil on his head. Something of a coronation, an induction. The priest, however, is not in a position to do this. He is fully biased in the other direction. 
which means God will need to find someone else. So a few miles outside of Jerusalem, in a little village called Bethany, which means house of the poor, Jesus is seated around a table with a handful of men. Lazarus is there. He just raised him from the dead. Suddenly from the shadows, a woman emerges and comes into the room. This is the first problem. In this culture, when the men are sitting at the table, the women are not allowed in the room at all except to serve. But it's serve and leave. Now suddenly, uninvited, unprompted, unscripted, Mary comes from the shadows up behind Jesus, and she takes a 12-inch jar of perfume, nard perfume. It's extracted from the nard plant in the mountains of northern India. It's all imported. You'll find out in a moment it's a year's worth of wages. Mark says she bends down and she breaks the top off of that jar. And she starts pouring the perfume onto his feet. This is a year's worth of wages. For a poor person in America today, it's about $20,000. She is just pouring $20,000 onto his feet. That's money she can't take back. There is no way a woman who lives in the house of the poor has this on hand. She had to have saved for this. This has to be a year's worth of collection. Love can be expensive, you know. And in less than a minute, it's gone. Suddenly, the fragrance starts filling the room. This act that was done to Jesus alone starts to fill the room. She wasn't doing this for anyone in the room. She was doing it for him. But as a result of that, the fragrance of it starts to spread around the room. One of the wonderful things about fragrance, like music, is it can occupy the same space other things occupy without kicking them out. Fragrance never competes. It never introduces itself. It never argues for its point. It never draws lines. It never distinguishes. It just quietly starts to fill the room. And suddenly an act that was meant for one becomes the property of all. Martha, her sister, must have been shocked. She was still busy serving. Lazarus is at the table. He must have thought that his sister had officially lost it. You just dumped 20,000 bucks on that guy's feet. But no one is prepared for what happens next. Mary then, bending over his feet, pulls the pin out of her hair, and her hair starts to fall down to the ground. And about this time, everyone in the room must have been gasping. You understand, in that culture, it was not correct for a woman to spend too much time 
with a man who was not her relative. She should not talk to him for very long in public. She surely should not touch him in public. And she would never let her hair down. That was kept for more intimate moments with a man to whom you were committed. N.T. Wright says it was the social equivalent of a woman today at a polite dinner party reaching down and grabbing her long skirt and hitching it up to the top of her thigh and pinning it. Suddenly, all kinds of thoughts are flying around the room. Martha is shocked. Lazarus is horrified. And the room is filled with men who cannot trust their own feelings right now. What is she trying to do? What does she want? Mary, in a beautiful way, is not thinking about any of this. This is uncalculated. She's not asking herself, how does this look? What will they say about me outside of this room? Here in an act that was uncalled for and hugely expensive, she has just poured everything she has on the feet of someone she loves. Love can be expensive, you know. Judas is the first one to speak for us all. His religion is far more calculated, efficient, defined, reasonable. And Judas says, why didn't she sell that perfume and use the money to feed the poor? For Judas, social justice is religion. He has a point because Jesus so far has said far more about social justice than he said about worship. But there are times in life when love can be expensive. This, Jesus turns to Judas and says, leave her alone. And when Jesus tells you to leave somebody alone, you better leave them alone. This is a beautiful scene. Jesus is talking to someone from his own company about someone who is not in his company, who has just done something they consider reckless. And he says, leave her alone. This is the treasure for crying out loud. This is the board. <laughs> And this woman has just wasted $20,000 in a way that the board would never approve. And yet the head of this movement says, leave her alone. There are times when you leave people to do what love tells them to do, period. I don't care if it fits in your structure. Now, all of this raises a question for us, does it not? 
Here is a woman who in less than 60 seconds does something that isn't required by religion. It's purely, purely out of love. It isn't cheap or convenient. It's a year's savings. It's a waste. It isn't calculated. She's not sitting down and saying, how will this look outside when everybody hears about it? It isn't repeatable. You can't do this again. The jar is broken and the money is gone. But everybody in the room benefits. The question that it begs this morning is what do you do for love alone? What are you willing to risk, lose, suffer, pay in order to honor the one who is the head of your religion? Americans are famous for calculating the cost of things. So, we have calculated the cost of religion. And in America, religion cannot cost us very much. Why? Some people say that they cannot tithe because they can't afford it. I can't practice spiritual disciplines because they're clumsy. They're not natural. I can't volunteer because I don't have time. I can't forgive all my enemies because all of my enemies don't deserve it. The question I have for you is, can your religion ever ask you to do anything that seems to you too hard? Every other religion in America is defined by the deity. He decides what is acceptable and what he wants. But frequently in America, we define the terms of our religion ourselves. So what I'm asking is, what are you willing to let your faith cost you? I'm not suggesting that you live on the edge your whole life. You can't. This act is not repeatable. But I am suggesting that there are times in your life when God will ask from you outrageous things, things your parents would never approve. It isn't safe. It's not reasonable. You can't do that. But something tells me at the end of the day in this scene, after cooler heads have prevailed and we've all talked about whether she went too far. When it comes time to go see Jesus, I'd rather be her.